Well, there's just no way for me to know all the details of what your week has looked like as it's led into today. But whether you have been riding on a mountaintop or you've been valleying through some difficult things, is it not always just a gift and a joy to come together with God's people and be reminded of a God who overcame and as a result, those of us who place faith in him, we also can be overcomers. What a joy to worship with the body of Christ today, amen? <clears throat> it's a joy to greet you as well. So glad to have you, whether you're worshiping with us online or other locations abroad, and of course right here in the room in Longwood. Let me uh, start off with a question though, and, and maybe just ask it this way and see if I can admit something. The, the ex exercise that we were just a part of, what we just experienced together, from a purely logical standpoint, if, you, if you'll admit it, just purely logical, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, from an intellectual platform at least. I mean, think about it, what we're doing is we're gathering a couple of elements of edible things to consume together, and they represent a body and blood, There's a little bit of a goriness to that. And why do we do this? Because a figure told us to do this, a figure who started a religious sect, a religious belief system, said, do this in remembrance of what I've done. And, and oh yeah, mind you, this, this leader was not somebody who was like, a, a cutthroat emperor during his time. He wasn't a battle-scarred warrior. By all accounts, he was a pitifully poor, seemingly insignificant, random figure in history, who, by the way, lived 2,000 years ago, spoke a language that nobody in this room could even speak, but with rhythm and routine, we take elements and we remember what he did for us. But with all that in, in consideration, any time any survey is conducted to try to identify who is the most influential person of all history, always at the top of the list, Jesus Christ. Any surveys that are done and conducted to try to figure out the most respected individual of all of history, Jesus. When you think about all the songs, who has been, had more songs written and sung about him, and, and who has had more artistic pieces, paintings or sculptures done to reflect his likeness or to capture uh, an image of this character? Jesus, no one else more than Jesus. Who has more self-described and self-professing uh, followers in the world today? No one more than Jesus. What's interesting to note is this, during the decades prior to Jesus' time on earth and the decades following, he wasn't the only one that claimed to be a Messiah. There were dozens of others who claimed to be the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the anointed uh, deliverer for the people of Israel. And what would happen often is they would gather a bunch of people around them. They would have a little religious group that would form and some type of a faith system would emerge where they saw this person as the uh, fulfilled messianic person. And ultimately what would happen is that person would be up against the rulers and he would normally get killed and often executed. Game over, pack up your toys, go home, this thing wasn't what we thought it would be, right? All of the time that happened, except for in one unique case, only one time was the leader of the organization executed, and yet it didn't fall apart, the teachings and the, the group that had followed his leadership, they didn't fall apart, in fact it did the opposite, it exploded. Within 300 years of his teaching, all of the Roman Empire, in spite of severe persecution, all of the Roman Empire is saturated with the message of Jesus. And within 2,000 years, we find ourselves in a room in Central Florida, wherever it is you're worshiping with us, doing exactly what he told us to do, taking elements out of faith, remembering what he has done. My goodness, who is this person named Jesus? Last week, if you were with us, you might remember Pastor Joel 
brought us to one of the most important questions that we can face anytime we ever have a, an apologetic or a faith discussion with someone else. What do you do? What does your teaching and your belief system, what do you do with Jesus, the Christ? That is the most important question that we can ask. His teachings, his life, what he claimed, what the scriptures say about him, what do you do with him? Because a lot of the other stuff is secondary. What we do with Jesus is primary. Those who want to go on a study of the scriptures to find out about the teachings of Jesus or about his life and of those who followed him, obviously usually go to the New Testament. It makes sense. That's where his story is contained for the most part. And besides that fact, when you get into the Old Testament, if you've ever looked through some of the Old Testament scripture, it's a little crazy in there sometimes, you know? Not only is it kind of maybe look irrelevant or almost archaic, I mean, after, after all, it is the Old Testament, right? It's got to mean something. But it's, there's some crazy stuff in there. There's blood and violence and battles, and there's so much confusion in there. In fact, as some of you might have seen, this week there's a new show uh, coming out on, I think it's this Tuesday night, it's um, of Kings and Prophets. Some of you may have seen the trailer on that. I, um, I saw a little clip, uh, an excerpt by the producer, and this is what he had to say of the new show coming out. By the way, it's intended to depict the stories in First and Second Samuel, books of the Old Testament, Life of David and Bathsheba and King Saul and Samuel and others. This is what he says about it. This show is a story of the Old Testament, one that is violent and sex-drenched. We hope to present a show that is tasteful but is also telling of the story that you would read if you went to pick up the Bible. <laughs> well, leave it to a producer to maybe sensationalize a little bit uh, some of the elements of the story. And yet, he's on to something. There is some truth to what he says. You turn the pages of the Old Testament and you see a lot of violence. You see a lot of blood. You do see a lot of PG-13 at best content in there that can leave one a little confused when we look just at the story itself. But what's often so easy to miss is this. Inside of all of those stories, there is a meta-narrative. There is a major story within all of those stories. Like taking all the pieces of a puzzle and putting them together. Each piece plays a part in a whole that tells a whole complete picture. What's even more is that when you look even closer, you'll see that through all of the pieces and through the story itself as a whole, there's this thread that is woven through it. Every genealogy, every battle and skirmish, every king, every prophecy, every parable, every piece of poetry, over and over there is this consistent thread, a crimson thread, that is woven all through the story of Scripture. And it's a powerful story. It's one that we base our faith system completely on. And we can find incredible confidence uh, in the continuity of Scripture as a result. In fact, I, let me just give you a couple Unscripted, real quick, a couple sidebar things here. What I've learned about myself in pre preparation for messages is this. I, I, you probably have noticed whenever I've spoken, I kind of transcribe and I type out notes and I try to highlight along just to keep me where I want to go on track. And what I've learned about myself is usually it takes me about seven minutes to get through one page. So when preparing for a message, I usually go about four pages or so, figuring that's about the length of content. In preparation for this message today, I came up with 12 pages of notes. So you're going to get a lot of extra free stuff. And I plan to cover them all in complete detail for you today. So <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I promise. What that means is there's a whole lot. We're going to cover a lot of scriptures and touch on a lot of little pieces in the Bible. But there's so much that's been left on the cutting room floor this week. So much that I hope that if you're a student of the scripture, if, even if you're a skeptic and you've wondered and you wanted to kick the tires on this, I hope you'll have your appetite wet a little bit for the truth and the teaching 
in this, this portion of the scripture called the Old Testament, it tells us so much about our faith. In fact, the other disclaimer I just wanted to mention is this. This week has been really powerful for me as I've, as I've studied through preparing for this because I gotta tell you, my fingerprints have been on pages in the word of God this week that maybe I haven't looked at in a while. Just, they get kind of lost in the shuffle. They're not the go-to text usually. Oh, but I have looked and been, I've been overwhelmed. I really have personally in my faith journey as I've come face to face with text after text and story after story that gives confidence and continuity to the one I put my faith in, Jesus Christ, in a world that comes unraveled more and more day by day to be reaffirmed that there is a thread through scripture, there is a master plan that God has had all along and there are fingerprints all over it. Oh, it's been just confidence building in my own faith journey. And so my hope today is that it will be true for you as well. Can't give it to you all and don't worry as you look, you might see a lot of knots and think, holy cow, he's got a long way to go. I'm just gonna give you just a couple highlights here and there. Just tip the iceberg of some of the things that the scripture tells us that shows this common thread through the scripture all pointing to Jesus Christ. Starts right away in the very first pages. Genesis chapter one, two, three, you know the story, Adam and Eve come on the scene. One of the first things they decide to do as they start to breathe air that the creator has given them is reject and disobey the creator God. They take of the apple, they eat the fruit, and immediately they know something's wrong, something's changed. And so what do they do? They head out back to the garden, grab some fig leaves. Something doesn't feel right, we gotta cover up here. And they're right, something wasn't right, and they did need to cover up, but it wasn't anything like they thought. God says, no, there is a price to pay, but the fig leaves aren't gonna cover it. And we come to the first part of the scarlet thread, where it says in Genesis chapter 3, 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he used them to clothe them. Immediately, God himself sheds blood to pay for the price of someone else's disobedience, of someone else's failure and sin. And it's a forecast of the fact that eventually there would be another person who would shed their innocent blood to pay for the price of sin once and for all. We go into the garden and we run into a couple young lads named Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve have two sons and what's interesting about them is they, they intuitively want to worship the God who created them. It's, it's kind of a beautiful part of their story. And as a result, they, they offer the best that they can. Cain goes to the land, that's all he knows, fruits, vegetables, he offers this sacrifice from the land, but Abel has been tipped off. That's not what God requires. He requires a sacrifice. He requires that blood be spilled. And so Abel goes to the pen of lambs, grabs a lamb, prepares a sacrifice and brings that to God. And you've got these two sacrifices before God. And we see the thread continue because God's response is that only one of those sacrifices is acceptable to him. It's the one that Abel offered, the lamb, the one that spilled the blood. Why is that? Why does God only receive that one and not Cain's? Well, the answer comes in Hebrews 9, 22, way later in the scriptures, where we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of our sin. There is no remission or removal of our sin. There's a crimson thread, and it continues to point to the fact that someone, sometime, some deliverer will have to ultimately pay a price to pay for the penalty of sin and to be, um, be something acceptable in worship to God. We move on and there's this, this famous individual who's who in the Old Testament named Abraham, right? And God has a choice servant in Abraham and he has seen his faithfulness and his devotion, his obedience, but he wants to test him. 
So what he does is he says, I want you to do this, to prove your faith and obedience to me. I want you to offer your son, the one that you love dearly. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Remarkably, Abraham does what God wants and he takes his son, lays him literally on an altar. And as he takes up his dagger, ready to just plunge this dagger into the heart of a son that he desperately loves, an angel stops him. No, you've proven yourself. You've proven your devotion and your faith to God. And so you don't have to sacrifice your son. Let's his son down. There's joy and relief between father and son. And yet, a sacrifice is still required. A sacrifice still needs to be made. And so Abraham looks over in the bushes and he sees a ram. Goes over, takes the ram, lays this innocent animal as a sacrifice before God. And God is pleased with it. We see in this picture, the thread continues, we see that a substitutionary animal can come in and take the place of a sacrifice. And again, it's pointing, it's pointing forward to the New Testament where we will hear about the one that we just remembered through communion. Later on, we're moving on in, in the Exodus and through this time, the people of Israel find themselves in slavery and bondage to the people of Egypt. And the heartbeat of God just comes crashing through the story because he aches to deliver his people. And so he um, providentially intervenes. He gets into the story with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you might remember some of the story. He does a lot of different plagues, the flies, the frogs, all kinds of weird stuff, blood in the rivers, all kinds of stuff. Always showing the hardened heart of one who is opposed to the way of God versus there is hope and freedom for those who follow the way of God. Even in bondage, God's heart was to set them free. And so the ultimate act in bringing freedom to this, them is this. The last plague, he says, I will strike down. You can see it in Exodus chapter 12. I will strike down the firstborn of every family that is in Egypt at this time. And if you are part of Israel and you want to align yourself with me as your God, Yahweh God, and you follow after me, I want you to make a sacrifice. It will be the indicator that you are with God. Those who don't have this are not with me. What you'll do is you'll take a lamb. And this time he gets a little more specific. Not just any lamb, it needs to be a young, male, perfect, spotless lamb. No defects or anything. Take that lamb, prepare it. There is so much detail in Exodus 12, it's remarkable. Prepare it as a sacrifice and take the blood of that lamb. And what you'll do is go out to your doorpost. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, you'll paint this on the doorpost and the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see the crimson thread continuing? The way that they would be protected, the way that their lives would be saved and spared was by the protection of the symbolism of the blood. The Passover lamb, the Passover blood would result in God passing over them. It's just remarkable symbolism there. In fact, it was so remarkable and so uh, pertinent to the story of God that Later on in the same chapter, verse 25, he says, I want you to do this from generation to generation. When you enter the land, don't do this thing one time. Do it every year. Uh, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what are we doing? Why do we keep sacrificing the little lamb all the time? Why are we doing this year after year, mom, dad? You will be able to tell them this. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. Out of his love, out of his great plan, out of his provision, he passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt. And he spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Part of God's ultimate deliverance story for his people 
involved a crimson thread that would ultimately point to the cross, to the Holy One, the true Lamb of God. In fact, think about this. When John introduces Jesus in John chapter 1, John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ, how does he announce him? He sees him in the distance, and in John 1.29, he says this. The next day, Jesus is coming, and John shouts out, Behold, get this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are a lot of mascots that teams like, like tigers and bears and lions. To shout out to somebody's a lamb is not quite the masculine macho thing, right? But man, they knew what he meant when he shouted it out. The lamb of God, wait a second, generation after generation, this is what we've been doing. We've been sacrificing a lamb to acknowledge our sin. This is the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. It's just remarkable, the crimson thread all through scripture. It's during this time in the Exodus that God begins to give the law to Moses as well. And the law played an incredible part in the Old Testament. It can be kind of confusing for us, but in a nutshell, the point of the law was to bring order to disorder. It gave these guidelines and standards that God would require of his people to live before him. He's a holy God. He has a standard. He has some barriers, some out of bounds. Don't do this and do this. And, and he just gave this as a script for them. There's a paradox to the law. It was absolutely impossible to live it. And God knew this. So as a result, as they were held to the standard to live the law, as a result, there had to be a payment. Even though there was a paradox, he still required a payment. A sacrifice would continually be made. You get into Leviticus and you get into Numbers and different books like that and you see all the um, very specific detail of all the sacrifices for all the different sins and all the different seasons. All of them because they would break parts of the law. Again, it's a paradox. They couldn't keep the law in its entirety. It's impossible. You think about it over and over, you'll see it in the Old Testament, first in the tabernacle, and then you'll see it in the temple. Thousands, friends, thousands and thousands of um, lambs and oxen and turtle doves are sacrificed repeatedly, showing that there is a payment for sin. They couldn't pay the penalty of it. They couldn't expunge sin from the record. They could only remind them that they were sinful people. And they could only say, we acknowledge, we have broken your laws. You are a holy and just God. And we acknowledge it. So we make our sacrifice as a penance before you. Over and over they would make these sacrifices. Can you imagine the stench that would rise up in the camp? There's something like grotesque and disgusting to it, but a constant palpable reminder to the people that you have sinned, you have missed God's holy mark, and there is a tremendous price, there's a cost to our sin. What's interesting is you fast forward all the way to the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews speaks quite often about the Messiah, but specifically in Hebrews chapter 10, some verses here that I want to look at with you, that talk quite a bit about the sacrifices of the Old Testament and where Jesus comes in the picture as the ultimate once and for all answer the one who really can pay the full penalty of sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, it can just forecast it or prophesy it, it can never, the law can never, by these sacrifices that were offered continually year after year after year, it can never make purpose, perfect those who draw near. They keep offering the sacrifices because they have to keep, and it can't make them whole. It can't make them perfect. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sin. In other words, here's the thing, the best they can do is acknowledge their sin. They can annually or day after day and week after week be reminded of their sin, but they can't yet be forgiven fully of their sin. It says in the next verse here, for it is impossible, verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All they could do in the Old Testament, out of obedience to the law, all they could do was offer bulls and turtle doves and goats and lamb, but that couldn't take away their sin. Verse five, one of, the, one of the great words of scripture, therefore, when it talks about Jesus, that there was something in the crimson thread in the Old Testament that couldn't be fulfilled, but God had a plan. So therefore, enter Jesus, verse four, I'm sorry, verse five, therefore, when he comes into the world, he, Jesus says this, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired that, but a body you have prepared for me, my body, Jesus says, it's not whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin that you have taken pleasure in. It's kind of a confusing verse. Anybody, what did he just say? Because didn't he keep offerings or God keep demanding that sacrifices be offered to him? Yes, but that's not his ultimate desire in it. What, what, what Jesus is saying here is this, that it's the heart I'm after. It's not the activity or the ritual of slaying a lamb or spilling blood. It was symbolic of the fact that I want to fully forgive you, to fully be restored with you in relationship. And it couldn't be done in the Old Testament. Bulls and, and lambs and all the sacrifices couldn't cover it. So Jesus enters the picture and says this, the submissive son to the father. Verse um, 7, then I, Jesus said, behold, I have come. Proclamation, behold, I have come. For in the scrolls of the book it is written about me. I have come to do your will, O oh God. Behold, I have come. Think about it in the garden where Jesus says, let this cup pass over me. Nevertheless, it's not my will, it's yours. I have come to accomplish your will for my life. This crimson thread, this master narrative plan that God has always had from the beginning. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of it. It continues on in Hebrews chapter 10. Then he, Jesus said, again, behold, I have come to do your will. He repeats it. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Takes away the first. We no longer sacrifice animals as a reminder of our sin because Jesus himself has once and for all paid the penalty for our sin. Verse 10, by this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We're 2,000 years removed from these words being written and these words being shared, but I can't tell you the joy, the awe, the connect the dots that had to be taking place in the ears of the listeners and their hearts as they realized that this crimson thread that they had experienced generation after generation after generation, Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer. There was no need to sacrifice lambs. There was no need to sacrifice bulls anymore. They had all been symbolic of the one who would come and ultimately sacrifice himself. The one without blemish, the one without spot, the perfect lamb of God once and for all. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this was his mission. He says in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. No, no, no. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them, to complete them. Paul uh, reaffirms that in Acts chapter 13 as he's preaching. He says, we tell you the good news, the gospel. The proclamation is this. 
What God promised our ancestors, he has now fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you were not able to ever obtain under the law of Moses. There was a purpose to the law, yes, but it would only remind you of your need for a Messiah. And Jesus has now changed all of it. It's reiterated again in Romans chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law. That end of the law, the completion, the culmination of it. He is the righteousness for everyone who believes. That word end is um, the Greek word telos. It's this idea of, let me give you a football analogy of it, okay? What telos means, the end, the culmination. Because I like football, and maybe this will help you. It's like a team that has been driving and just drudging three yards at a time, two yards at a time, all the way up the field. And then they can see the, the goal line at the end, but they just they keep pushing and pushing. They're part of a crimson thread, right? They just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And they hand the ball off to Jesus and say, take it into the end zone. And Jesus completes it, telos. He sees the end of it, puts it in the end zone, touchdown, spike the football. Once and for all, it's paid. There is no more drive needed. There is no more sacrifice needed. The crimson thread has come full circle. Amen? That's what it is. That's the crimson thread all through Scripture. I'm a Notre Dame fan, and i got to put a Notre Dame little plug here. You know touchdown Jesus out there, right? I mean, there might be something to that, um, if you know what I'm talking about outside the stadium. Um, there are so many prophecies in Scripture. There's just not, not a lot of time to tell you this. But there are prophecies all over the Testament forecasting Jesus Christ. Theologians can argue anywhere from 300, 450 different prophecies. There's just hundreds of them that talk about Jesus. Can I, can I just give you a few of them on this crimson thread? You ever looked at, let me, let me start with this first of all, just to kind of put the weight of this. You know we're in this super joyful, super love fest of a presidential election season, don't you? You know, we're, I mean, this is a joy right now, isn't it? Woo! Um, Imagine, I mean, can you imagine, go back 12 months ago, who could have forecasted 12 months ago some of the names of those who would still be standing as possibilities for our president, just 12 months ago? So let's take it a step further though, just imagine, forget the presidential election of 2016, go to 2064, like maybe 50 years from now, every four years, 2064, there should be an election. Take a stab, I'll give you a billion bucks. If you can tell me who you know will be the president, I'll give your kids and grandkids a billion bucks if you can tell us who will be the president that will be elected in 2064. Better yet, tell us, tell us what city they'll be born in. Tell us what family they'll come from, all those things. It's ludicrous on one level, isn't it? We can't even tell year to year, month to month almost what's coming up next. And yet friends, the prophecies of the Old Testament, you wanna be firmed up in your faith? Go back and look at the book of Micah. Little prophet Micah, he tells us this little insignificant off the radar city called Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem now, the whole manger story. It meant nothing in the Old Testament. This little blip on the radar of Bethlehem, that's where the promised Messiah will come from. By the way, he told us this 500 years before it happened. Go to Zechariah. You ever spent time studying in there? If you want to get into prophecy, that's the one to go into. There are more messianic prophetic announcements in um, Zechariah than any other, all of the other actually minor prophets combined. It's in Zechariah that he tells us that there will be a king, that the Messiah will be a king who will sacrifice his life on behalf of those he is leading. He also says that this king will come riding into Jerusalem, but you can't guess what he'll be riding on. A donkey. Wow. 
And he, said, he told us this 700 years before it happened. He also told us that this king coming and riding on a donkey will also be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Keep moving on. You go into Isaiah, and, and you've heard Isaiah 714. He gives us the miraculous method that the Messiah will be born, a virgin birth, a woman who had never been with a man. You got to think that Isaiah, even as he's writing down, he's like, are you sure? Okay. I mean, there's something like this doesn't even make sense. 700 years before it takes place, the angel makes the announcement to both uh, Mary and Joseph that Mary is going to conceive and it's by God alone. You go back into the Psalms. The Psalms tell us how Jesus will die, that he will have his hands pierced. And he says that the Messiah will also have his feet pierced. By the way, this is centuries before crucifixion was ever created or invented. The Psalms tell us about the resurrection. It says that you will not let your Holy One decay in the grave, but you will lift him up over and over. There are 300, 400, however many there are prophecies, over and over they each serve to remind us that there is a crimson thread that God has given us that leads its way all the way to the shed blood of Jesus, this true Lamb of God. It's remarkable, over and over, the crimson thread runs all through Scripture. All the kings, all the battles waged, there's just no time to tell about all this. All the, the nap-inducing genealogies that I know you get all tripped up in, why are they in there? It's because every one of them are a story within the story. Every character, every key figure, they all point to Jesus. Each story is its own unique signpost on this road, its own knot on the rope, pointing us to the fact that there is a crimson thread, uh, crimson thread and God has always been at work. He has always had a plan. He has always had a place of hope and redemption for those who will follow after him. He has always had a path that will lead to the Messiah. That's the whole mega story of Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. There is so much value in Scripture. There's for teaching and how we should live and how we should behave and practice and all that. But the scripture first and foremost is not about you and me and what we should do. The scriptures are about Jesus Christ and what he has already done. That's the point of the scripture. That's the mega story and the crimson thread all the way through tells us that. So here's a question. Not only does God give us this redemptive plan, Jesus himself, but he gives us all this. Why does he give us all of this? All the stories, all the law, and all the intricate detail of it. All the prophecies. Why does he give us all of this? Could it be that he so desperately wants it to be crystal clear that all through history there's a path of love and redemption? That he has a heartbeat that is so fast for his creation that not only does he want to provide the way but all along the way, he wants to have blinking lights and big signs and big arrows saying, this is the way, this is the one. Could it be that he wants to give us all of this so we won't miss it? We won't miss out on the hope that Jesus is. He's the only hope of the world. Could it be that he's given all of this to you because his heart beats fast for you? Isn't that the kind of God that you would want to worship and you would want to follow after? Contrast this with with the daily experience that we have right now, the, the conflict, the confusion, the angst of the world that we live in. Every day we're faced with more challenges, we're faced with more instability, less predictability. Counter that with the fact that from the beginning, Jesus has always been in charge. 
The scriptures show this path over thousands of years that he's always had a plan. He has always known that you and I will need redemption. He has always known that you and I will miss the mark. And he has always known that he has this path for a Messiah to demonstrate his love. And it's this crimson thread. It's the blood of Jesus through which he shows this. Um, when you came in, you should have received a little red thread like this. I hope you received one. Would you pull that out if you have that real quick? A little four-inch piece of red thread. <clears throat> I hope you haven't lost it because, friends, we spared absolutely no expense um, putting together a takeaway for you. The technology that went into this is remarkable. I know some of you may be worshiping with us online or just really feeling left out in this moment. Please don't. Um, uh, you could find the lint in your pocket is about um, the equivalent. No, rubber band, a string, anything. You'll get the point in just a moment. But the whole point is this. Each one of us also have a thread. Now you might look at this, well, that's pretty insignificant. It kind of is. I get that. And compared to his thread, it is insignificant. But it's the only thread that we have. And ultimately, at the end of the day, God loves your thread. He loves you. He loves your story. And he wants to redeem it. And he wants to bring hope and life into every part of it. Some of you may be like, where, where does the whole crimson thread or the scarlet thread idea come from? And I know some of you know the answer because you hit me out in the foyer. You say, are we hitting on Rahab today? Yeah, Rahab in the Old Testament. For those who don't know, Rahab is in Joshua chapter 2. She's an occupant of the city of Jericho. And Israel is about to take over Jericho and is going to take occupancy and, and attack them. Two spies are sent into Jericho to figure out what's going on. Rahab, by um, occupation, is a prostitute. She, she has a house where prostitutes do what they do. And so when weary travelers come by, this seems to be a place where they can stop. It's also a good place to hide a couple spies. And so the two spies from Israel hide in Rahab's house. And where the thread comes in is this. Rahab recognizes that the God of these spies, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And God is up to something. And she intuitively knows that they're about to be attacked. And what's interesting in wisdom and just faith, she protects the spies as others in the city are looking for them. They're aware and she hides and protects them and shows them kindness. Rahab says, because of the kindness I've shown you, I know that you worship the one true God. And because I have been kind to you, when you attack us, will you be kind to my family? Will you protect my family? Isn't that incredible, the faith that she exerts uh, as she's speaking to them? And they catch it. And they say, we will tell you this, when the time comes, you're right, that's our plan. And when the time comes, if you will hang a cord, this red cord out of your window, symbolically letting us know where you live, all of your family that gather inside that room in that home will be protected when we attack. Don't miss the symbolism of that, friends. The, the red scarlet thread staying inside there is where life and protection is found. Sure enough, Rahab hangs the cord out there. The city is attacked, her life, her family is spared. It's an amazing story, Joshua chapter two. But here's the thing, whatever happens to Rahab? Well, here's the thing, she, and she joins into the family of Israel, into the nation of Israel. You ever heard of Ruth and Boaz, the little book of Ruth? Boaz is actually the son of Rahab. Later on, Rahab becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. Um, what's remarkable, you get into the New Testament, she's referenced a few times. One of them is in Hebrews chapter 11. Rahab amidst this who's who hall of fame of faith of the Old Testament in Hebrews 11. Rahab has a verse all to her own. 
by faith Rahab when she just, she protected the spies. God delivered her and saved her life. It's remarkable. But the verse in the New Testament that I love about Rahab is this. It's, it's the first time her name appears in the New Testament. It appears in the first book of the New Testament. The first page of the New Testament, the first paragraph of the New Testament has the name of Rahab. You know why? Because she's in the lineage. She's an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Can you believe that? God takes Rahab's story, her thread, and weaves it into the story of Jesus. This crimson thread has way in the back, and there's a lot of sultry figures in the crimson thread, but it has a prostitute way at the beginning who was part of it, who God is able to take that thread and redeem it and give life and, and make it part of the story. You may be sitting here and you think, my thread is junk. I've got nothing to offer God. In fact, the only thing I do have to offer God is horrible. It's embarrassing. And you may think your story is too dark to be a part of his story. Ask Rahab. Ask Rahab about that because talk about a dark story, but talk about a story of redemption. I can't, I've been thinking this morning about the, those who are at our uh, correctional facilities. I'm not sure which camera to look at, but you in our correctional facilities, you might hear that and you think, hey, listen, there's a reason I am where I am today and there's part of my story that probably can't be knit into God's story. You couldn't be more wrong in that. And I hope you hear that from the story of Rahab and I hope you hear that from the story of Scripture. You would not believe how much you are prayed for around this place. You would not believe how much hope and joy we take in the stories of transformation that we hear about you all the time. You have a story, you have a knot on this rope and the world needs you to live it right where you're at and right wherever the life takes you. You need to live out the thread that God has given you. And that's true for everybody else as well. You may not be contained and confined behind walls right now, but there might be something that captures you and keeps you from fully living out the story of Jesus in your life. And what we wanted to do is this. I want, to, I want you to keep this week, it's so insignificant, but hopefully you can t keep it and tuck it somewhere that it will remind you that there is a crimson thread and you get to be a part of it. But in a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity just a space to pray. And while you do, would you listen to the author of the story? Everything we've shared today, it's from the scriptures, but maybe just for a moment, set it aside and listen to what he says to your heart. Could there be something in your life that's keeping you from fully living in and fully living out his story, the crimson thread? Is there something that's, that maybe he just wants to reveal to you? And I can't answer that for you, but I know the spirit of God, I've experienced it well enough to know he'll reveal something to you in the space. So let me invite you to just bow with me if you would, just for a moment. I'm gonna give you about 30 seconds here. Would you listen to the author of the story? Just let him fill this space with whatever it is he wants you to hear. Father God, may you complete whatever it is you've placed in the heart of each individual here and each individual worshiping with us online. Will you complete whatever it is your desire is according to your will? God, we, we have much uncertainty around us. We have much that we don't know. 
But as we have seen from the scripture and be reminded again today, we have much that we do know, much that you have revealed. And it is a beautiful story. It is a beautiful plan of redemption. This crimson thread over and over and over. Thank you, God, for loving us so that you give us these blinking lights, these roadmaps, these, these signposts all along the way pointing over and over and again to where the hope is and where the life is. And it's found in Jesus Christ. May we live in that hope together, Lord. And may those around us be impacted deeply by it. In your name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Friends, this week, hang on to this. You may even just tie a knot in it to remind yourself that you're a part. You've got a knot in this crimson thread. And as you live out your life, may you live it in such a way boldly and joyfully and with confidence on the plan that God has. May you live it in such a way that he gets all the glory and it all points back to the crimson story of Jesus Christ. Let your life be lived out. Let your story be lived out for him.